Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6, and as you turn, the sprouts can be dismissed. Uh, children two years through kindergarten can go with Raquel and Katie. Let's give our children's workers a round of applause this morning for their work in our children. Joshua chapter 6 through 8, and I uh, hope you have your Bible with you, um, and I hope you can turn there. If uh, you are new to the Bible, uh, open it up, and every Bible has a table of contents. You can find a page number in your Bible, and uh, you can find Joshua very easily that way. Joshua chapter 6, and we're looking at three chapters today. So what I want to do is I'm going to actually read a, just a bit from each chapter right now to kind of give you an idea of the flow of where we're going, um, and uh, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig into these, these three chapters and see what God has for us this morning. Joshua chapter 6, starting with verse 20, I'm going to read through uh, verse 21, then I'm going to read... Five verses out of chapter 7 in the first verse of chapter 8. So try to follow along as I read these verses. Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction. Both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Get up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let only two or three thousand men go up and attack the city. Do not make the whole group toil up there, for they are, they are few. So about three thousand men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Chapter 8, verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Let's pray. God, we ask that you open our eyes, open our hearts as we come into these these words. We are a people who are uh, looking at Joshua, um, understanding that Christ came after Joshua. Uh, We're seeing Joshua through the lens of the the wonderful news of Jesus Christ. Uh, We are a people here that understand how broken we are. We understand that we were once far off from the covenant. We were once far off from 
your love. We were strangers to you, yet you sent Christ into this world to die for us, to rescue us, to fight for us. And here we then come together as people around Christ and we place our sins, the guilt of our sins, onto Christ this morning. And as we do so, God, I pray that you open us up to the truth that you have here in Joshua, a truth that, uh, that causes us to look forward to Christ and to see our standing in Christ today as forgiven sinners. Speak to us. I pray that your spirit does the work that I can't do this morning, and that's to convict souls, to convict hearts, to grow people spiritually, to grow people toward you, into relationship with you. God, I ask for a renewal, for a revival to take place in the hearts of the people here that spreads to the entire body of this church and into the, the city as a whole. And it's in the name of Jesus and it's in his power that we pray. Amen. Amen. So I uh, am um, glad to have my parents with me today, my mom and my dad. Give them a round of applause and save some applause. Jess's mom, my mother-in-law, and Jess's sister are all here uh, this weekend to celebrate the birthday of our son. Um, <clears throat> so as my mom is here, I want to use her as a, a, an example of somewhat of an, uh, to illustrate maybe where we're going today. Um, I remember as a child... Uh, being with my mom in Kmart. Do you guys remember Kmart? <laughs> Shows you how old I'm getting. All right, some of these young cats today, they've never even been in a Kmart. What's that? Yeah, it's where we would buy records, right? <laughs> Not that old. Cassette tapes we would buy at Kmart. I, re- I remember being at Kmart as a child and being, uh, or having, having this, this desire uh, to go to the toy section right? Because Kmart had an awesome toy section. And I would be uh, relegated to the women's clothing <laughs> aisle, you know? And, um, and I, I remember a, a number of times just feeling sort of this, ah, uh, this angst, this desire to go to the toy section, to go see the toys, play with the toys, maybe get a toy, probably not, but at least I could look at them. And begging my mom to, let, you know, to take me there, and she wouldn't. We would have to stay in the women's little clothing section. Um, now, there, there were also times that I would just say, you know, I'm going to the toy section, right? I'm just going to start moving that direction. And, uh, and I don't care if you come or not, I'm going to the toy section. Now, what if, and I don't know if this happened, I wouldn't be surprised if it did, knowing my mother, what if, just for a moment, my mom ducked behind a clothing rack? As I'm walking to the toy, I'm going to the toy section, I'm going to go play with toys, and just for a moment, she ducks behind the clothing rack. And then I turn back, and I don't see my mother anywhere. Now, at that point, as a child, what is the only thing on my mind? Do, I mean, do I want to keep going to the toy section? What is the most important thing? It's to find the presence of my mother again. Like the toys really are not a big deal anymore. Now I've got a new mission, and that's to find the face, the presence of 
my mother. That probably happened, I think. I uh, wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I wonder if um, you are here today uh, with that sense of desire, that sense of longing for the face and the presence of God. I wonder if you're here today, and maybe it's because you have been wandering, you've had your eyes fixed on the toys, and you've been moving in that direction, and you're turning back, and you've experienced, you've sensed this lack of God's presence in your life, this lack of His power in your life. You don't feel Him like you once did. He's not, it doesn't seem like He's there. Or maybe it's this overwhelming sense of guilt that is upon you, that's crushing you. And you're here today seeking the face of God. And you're here today on the day of the Super Bowl, mind you, realizing that really the only thing that matters in this life is to find that face again. To be in that presence once again. To be with Him. To hear His voice. What we're doing today in Joshua is covering uh, three chapters. A quick sort of catch-up. If this is your first time here, if you weren't here last week, we um, have been traveling through this epic saga of Joshua. Last week we saw... The people of Israel in in Shadim, leaving Shadim, being led by the hand of God, being led into the promised land. God stops up the water. They walk across the dry ground of the Jordan River and they end up in the promised land, just outside of Jericho. We're seeing God miraculously give people the land. And so these three chapters today, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, are the, essentially the three parts of our story that we're covering today, that we're looking into. So let me just go through the three chapters as quickly as I can to give you like a broad overview, sort of a uh, Google Earth image of where we're going, so you can see it, and then we're going to kind of drop down, like on Google Earth, as we drop down into into the roads, we're going to see uh, sort of where we're going and then the specifics. So chapter 6, all right, let's begin with chapter 6. If you look at chapter 6 in your Bible, this is the, the, the miraculous fall of the city of Jericho. We see in chap, uh, chapter 6, verse 2, God says, see, talking to Joshua, I have given you Jericho. Who has given Jericho? God. This is this theme, this reoccurring theme all through the book of Joshua that God is giving them the land. All right, remember that. It's not the power of Israel in which they're taking the land. It's something that God is doing for Israel. So at the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, we see God say, hey, I'm going to give you the land. Chapter 23, at the end of the book, it caps it. God says, I gave you the land. And all through the book, we see God giving them the land. So here, he's in, in chapter 6, he says, I'm giving you the city of Jericho, the commander of the Lord's army, talking to Joshua, just kind of continuing from last week. God is giving them the city of Jericho, this, this city that is, uh, even modern archaeologists of all religious persuasions 
uh, say that this city had this massive wall built around it, a fortified city, one of the oldest cities in the world, actually, a very strong city, a city that these nomads would never be able to conquer in their own power. Uh, Archaeologists today say that around 1400 BC, there was a dramatic ending to, that, to the current state of that city. Like it, it was conquered, like quickly. I wonder how. And oh, by the way, it wasn't plundered, the archaeologists would say. I wonder why. What we're seeing here, guys, I want you to get this. This is actual history that we're reading about. We're reading the how today. So how is this city conquered? Well, God specifically tells Jericho, uh, Joshua how to conquer Jericho. So walk around six time, or one time every day for six days. Walk around the city. That's it. The seventh day, walk around the city how many times? Anybody remember this from the flannel graph in Sunday school? Seven days around the city. Those of you that didn't grow up in Sunday, Sunday school are saying, what is flannel graph? I've never heard of this strange thing. Seven times on the seventh day, and then the horns would be blown, and everybody would shout, and the walls would come down. Well, Joshua follows God's instructions completely. He is obedient to God. He is faithful to God. And then as a result, we see God faithful to his promises for Joshua and for the people of Israel. They walk around every day for six days, the seventh day, seven times, horns blown, shouts, the walls, it says in verse uh, 18, I believe it is, the walls, are, they fall flat. And the land is taken. The, the prostitute from chapter 2, she is delivered, she is saved. Jericho is defeated. Do you guys see how God's promises are being fulfilled all over the place here? So chapter 6 is about total faith and obedience and faithfulness on Joshua's part to the plan of God, to the word of God, and then as a result, God's miraculous defeat of Jericho. All right, that's chapter 6. Now, chapter 7 is entirely different. Look how chapter 7 begins. But the people of Israel broke faith. Chapter 7 is a massive failure. It's as if they get puffed up and arrogant and cocky. They say, wow, look what just happened. Let's do this. Without a word from the Lord, Joshua sends spies to Ai. Spies come back. They say, this is going to be a piece of cake. They're they're few in number. This is going to be easy for us. Instead of sending everybody like we did for Jericho, let's just send 3,000. All right? We've got this. 3,000 men go up, they're sent, 3,000 men are chased back down. AI says, no, you are not taking us. 36 are lost that day of Israel. And we find Joshua in chapter 6, or verse 6 of chapter 7, we find Joshua on his face before God saying, what happened? How could you have failed us? God says in verse 10, uh, get up. <laughs> I didn't fail you. All right, there's sin in the camp. You have failed in faithfulness. And so then what we find, the rest of chapter 7, is God exposing the sin that's in the camp. He exposes it specifically down to this man named Achan, who, right there in verse 1, took some of the devoted things. That's why they ran 
like little girls through a haunted house. Achan stole some of the things that they were not supposed to take. And so there's now sin in the camp. And what we see is um, in verse 21, what Achan looked at, what he saw, what he coveted, and what he took was a beautiful cloak, 200 shekels of silver, 50, a 50 shekel bar of gold. Some commentators say that that is about what an average worker would make in a lifetime. We're talking about a couple coins. So Joshua then follows God's instructions. He's faithful again to the word of the Lord. He finds Achan. Um, he, he deals with it. Achan is stoned. The judgment of God comes down upon Achan through the people of Israel. He is buried. And then chapter 8 is entirely different. Chapter 8, you could say, is maybe the way chapter 7 should have been. Look at the way chapter 8 starts. It says, and the Lord said to Joshua. So here's chapter 7 beginning with no word from the Lord about AI. Chapter 8 begins, okay, God is talking to us again. He's here. He's directing us again. And God says, no, let me tell you how to take AI. And it's not by sending 3,000 men like a couple of fools to so God gives them this strategy, this brilliant strategy, and I'll, I'll tell it to you really quick. God says, take 30,000 soldiers and, and place them behind Ai, all right? Hide them behind Ai. The people won't know they're there. 30,000. Then he says, Joshua, you take 5,000 with you and come toward the front of the camp. Now they will think you are making a foolish decision again. They'll think, oh, here comes dumb Israel. They brought 2,000 more with them. Let's chase them down the hill. But what would happen, is, of course, is the 5,000 would be chased as the men come out of Ai. The 30,000 then would come in and take the city. So this is what happens. Uh, Joshua follows, again, the word of God, the instructions of God. He's faithful. He's obedient to God. 5,000 come up. The men of his Ai come out. They chase them. God says, Joshua, raise your javelin. Joshua raises the javelin. And at that, 30,000 soldiers come down from behind the city and they completely take the city, and it says 12,000 were killed that day. Ai was destroyed, annihilated. And then uh, chapter 8 ends, if you want to look at the end of chapter 8 right there, with the king of Ai hanging and then buried, and then Joshua, I would say, this is my own thought, but trembling before God, renews the covenant, which is the promise of God. If, if, if you are faithful to us, uh, or I'm sorry, if, if we are faithful to the law, if we follow you, if we listen to your word, if we are obedient, then God will be faithful to his promise of giving us the land. So let's dive into this, all right? Everybody with me? It's a pretty crazy story, isn't it? Any videographers out there ready to make a movie? <laughs> don't do it. I don't know, maybe, maybe you could. Bible movies. Out of these, out of these three chapters, chapter 7, 8, and 9, <clears throat> or I'm sorry, 6, 7, and 8, out of these three chapters, there are four words that I want to draw your attention to this morning. The first two are found directly after the miraculous defeat of Jericho, and before, or as we see Israel's 
uh, human arrogance, if you would, just kind of coming to the forefront and going out on their own. Right in the middle here, chapter 7, verse 1, I want you to see these two words, and we're going to camp on these two words for a little while, a little while here. Broke faith. Everybody say it. Broke faith. Israel broke faith. The people of God broke faith. Let me break it down for you in a couple ways on how they broke faith and what their breaking faith meant for them. First, Israel broke faith in God and believed in themselves. They broke faith in God and they believed that they could take 3,000 of their own and do what only God can do. They broke faith in God and they believed in themselves. Look, look at uh, verse 1 right there in chapter 7. Do you see God's voice coming to J- Joshua and saying, okay, now is the time to send out spies? Do you see God's joy- voice coming to Joshua and saying, now is the time to go into Ai? Like God doesn't speak in chapter 7 at the beginning right here. There's no direction from God. I mean, it's as if Joshua is just in his mind puffed up and saying, we can do this on our own. Like, he's just moving 100 miles ahead of God in a sense and sending, sending spies into Ai and let's just, let's just take them. Taking the word of the spies. We can only send 3,000. Trusting the word of the spies instead of being patient. Never once do we see Joshua wait and pause and listen for the voice of God. And so out of his own power, the arrogance of humanity to believe that we do not have to listen to the Word of God. To believe that we don't have to pause in our plans and just think about God for a moment. To consider the will of God in our lives. Oh, the arrogance. I mean, is this not the problem of Christians today? God does something, we see His blessings, He he moves in our way in some powerful way, and then we get puffed up, and we think we were part of that. We think we did something. And then we say, all right, we got the next one. I got this. I'm good to go. The arrogance of humanity, guys. The the pride that, that sinks into our hearts and into our lives to operate without God. These two words, broke faith, ought to haunt us this morning. The the reality of what these two words mean in our lives ought to haunt us this morning. To break ourselves off from the voice of God. To break ourselves off from the, the experiential presence of God. To break ourselves off from the power of God who works through us and in us to go out into the kingdom of darkness, to go into our jobs, into our families, into our marriages, into our parenting, whatever it is we're going into, and to go into it on our own, believing that we have what it takes. Guys, we will die. We will not make it out. The kingdom of darkness it, it, it is powerful and it is strong and it will grab you and it will drag you down. And you may not die physically, but you will die spiritually. And if we are dead spiritually in this life, there is little hope for us in the next. Guys, may these words, broke faith, haunt you this morning.
I want you to feel the weight of these words. I want you to feel the travesty of these words. Secondly, look how they broke their faith. Look at verse 1 again. They broke their faith because, it says, for Achan took some of the devoted things. So they were not to take anything from Jericho. Achan saw some things and he took some of the things that were meant for destruction. Some of the cursed items. They looked good. It was worth a lot of money, evidently. And sin entered into the camp. Friends, is this not the problem of humanity? Sin has entered into the camp. I mean, let's, think, let's take it all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. We see the fall of Adam. I mean, is this not the sin of Adam? To see something, to lust after something, to see something that looks good, that looks pleasing to the eye, and my gosh, like, will it really hurt anybody if I take it? Who is it going to hurt? It's not going to hurt anyone. I mean, Aiken's looking at these things. Who's it going? This stuff is just going to be destroyed. But listen, it's not about this sort of the, these ramifications. We don't just uh, think of sin as, as a utilitarian in a sense. What we're realizing is at the core of sin is it's disobedience to God. It's not trusting the Word of God. It's saying, no, I think I am smarter than God. I think I've got it together more than God. I think I want these things even though... God said no. And sin entered into the camp. Guys, this is not just the story of Adam. This is the story of all of Israel. When you get into 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles is sort of a, uh, a history book, if you would, of the people of Israel. And what we see in 1 Chronicles is this. What we see is that broke faith, this is just like a precursor to what's coming for the people of Israel. In 1 Chronicles, this, this, this history book, chapter 5, it says that Israel broke faith and they whored after other gods. Chapter 9, they broke faith and they lost the promised land. Chapter 10, King Saul dies. Why? Because he broke faith, it says. Chapter 12, they broke faith and they were plundered. Chapter 26, they broke faith. Chapter 29, they broke faith. Chapter 30, they broke faith. Chapter 36, they broke faith and it polluted the house of the Lord. The people of Israel, listen, who have just experienced the miraculous power of God. They broke faith. I had a non-Christian friend of mine say to me, if God did a miracle right here, right now, I would believe in Him. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. I mean, and we know that because we're seeing it right here. If anybody is going to hold on to their faith... It is the people of Israel. They just saw the river stopped up. They just saw the the walls of Jericho just miraculously fall down. And immediately after this miraculous power of God is seen, they break faith. This is the problem of humanity. Number three, I want you to see the consequences now of breaking faith. Look what happens. In chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, we see the consequences of sin. First, it's the fall of Jericho. God's judgment upon those who live in Jericho. We see the, the, 
the 12,000 of Ai, God's judgment comes down upon them through the people of Israel, and they are destroyed. The king of Ai is hanged, then buried. God's judgment for sin upon the king of Ai. Do you realize how God hates sin? And not only those outside the camp, but those inside the camp when they break faith. When the faith is broken, specifically here in regards to Achan, his, he broke faith as an individual, and to root it out meant the judgment of God would come down upon Achan. Do you guys realize? Joshua, Joshua is a hard book to preach because uh, there's a lot of death in it. Let's just be straight up. I'm not, I don't want to candy coat any of this. It says 12,000 died. It's a hard book to preach to modern people because there's a lot of death in it. But let me say this, and I truly believe this. The only reason this offends our modern sensibilities is because we do not understand the sinfulness of sin. We do not understand the travesty of sin. We do not understand how sinful sin actually is. How polluted we are as a human race because of sin in our lives. We do not understand the sinfulness of sin because we do not understand the holiness of God. We think God is a generally good God and we are generally good people. I'm shocked. I'm constantly astounded how many Christians I come across who believe that sin is just something they do on the side that God in His mercy looks over. No, let me, let me show you how Paul in Romans explains the sinfulness of sin and, and the travesty of sin and the terrible consequences of sin in our lives as, as human beings. Paul says this in Romans. He says, none is righteous, meaning sin isn't just something we do on the side. Sin is actually what we are, like there's no good in us. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God. Before their eyes, he says. Sin is dreadfully sinful. The consequences of sin is annihilation because there is none righteous, no, not one. God is infinitely holy and humanity is infinitely sinful. And if we want to believe that that's not true, you just simply have to get on your news feed on your phone. Read the news. Why are we killing each other? Maybe not physically, but in our hearts. Why are we lying to each other? Why are we... Why does greed just devour us. It's because sin has 
got a root on the hearts of humanity, and we are sinners. And God's judgment and His wrath burns against sin and sinners. And we see this being played out right here as in this very unique experience. This, the wrath of God comes down upon Jericho, upon Ai, upon the king of Ai, and here specifically upon Achan. Now, something else I want you to see here is that um, Achan's sin doesn't just simply affect him as an individual. Because that's what we think, right? I mean, we think, okay, I get it, sinfulness of sin, wrath of God, for, but it just simply affects me as an individual. <clears throat> if I sin, I mean, what does that do? How does that hurt anyone else? What we see here is something that we won't necessarily just see by looking at a group of people or at a church, but that in some way, sin pollutes a body. So Achan's sin doesn't just simply affect him as an individual, but it affects the entire camp of Israel. It affects the body of Israel. It actually affects, check this out, the judgment of Joshua. Why is Joshua acting without the presence of God, without the power of God, without listening to the voice of God? It's because Achan sinned. The sin of Achan has, has polluted the body. And the very mind of Joshua now is, is off. Even in the New Testament, I mean, lest we just write this off as just simply an Old Testament thing, even in the New Testament, this side of the cross, Paul in 1 Corinthians, as he's dealing uh, with, with this immoral brother who's having sex with his mother-in-law, he says to the church, he says, don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens the entire lump? Meaning, don't you know that a little bit of sin in the camp makes sinful, makes, uh, brings condemnation in a sense, pollutes the entire body? The entire body is not thinking right? Guys, sin is very sinful. And it doesn't just simply affect you, it affects the body. It pollutes the body, the people around us. In the same way that Adam, the sin of Adam, polluted the entire race. By one man's sin, Paul writes, by one man's sin, sin entered into every single human being. And because of the sin of Achan, it spreads to the body. The mind of Joshua is tweaked. This unholy, sort of dark deadliness, terror of sin just sweeps over them. And they end up with 36 dead, running away from Ai, embarrassed, and here's Joshua fallen on his face, wondering what's going on. I want you to feel the weight of these two words, broke faith. Feel the weight of that. Feel the consequences of that. Feel the, the, the terror of that. Feel the travesty of that. But I also want you to see something else before we move on. I want you to see the mercy of God in all of this. I want you to see the mercy of God in all of this. Look, Israel did not just run from Ai as a natural result of God removing His presence. That's the way we like to think. We like to think, oh, I think things didn't work out and it's, God didn't really have anything to do with it. It's actually just a natural result of me turning my back on God. I want you to see the mercy and the action of God actually in the failure 
of Israel. Look at verse 3. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Meaning like God's now dead set against Israel having a victory here. Look at verse uh, 12. It says the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies. Why? Because they have become devoted for destruction. Another way to say that is they've become cursed. God right now is in, in chapter 7 is actually dead set against Israel having a victory over Ai. And I want you to see his mercy in that. Can you uh, think about it? What's the worst thing that God could have possibly done? The worst thing he could have done is to allow Israel to have had a victory here. With sin in the camp, relying on themselves, relying in their own flesh, in their own intellect, in their own mind, the worst thing God could have done would, would have been, been to allow them that victory. Imagine how different the rest of Joshua and maybe even the Bible would have read had God not stopped them and said, no, you will not have a victory without me. You will not have a victory in your own power. You will not have a victory with sin in your life. God, God, the hand of God breaks Israel here and knocks Joshua on his face in verses 6 through 9. Joshua's on his face. He's fallen before God and he's saying, what is going on? on. Guys, theologians hundreds of years ago called this the doctrine of desertion. Everybody say desertion, meaning God has deserted us. These moments in life where God removes his sense of power from us, he removes his sense of presence from us. Why? So that we may be broken. Lord, thank you for breaking me. So that we may fall on our faces as Joshua and cry out to him. This is a mother ducking behind a clothing rack because the the kid is just all about those toys. I just want those toys. I want you, but I want you so you can take me to the toys. Our eyes are on the toys. And for a moment, the mother ducks behind a clothing rack because the mother doesn't want the son just to believe that she exists as a genie to take, them, take him to the toys, but rather the mother wants the son to want her. And so there are these moments that we see here where God removes his power and his presence from our life for just a moment so that we may take our eyes off of the blessings and the toys that we are after and so that we may fall on our face before God and realize that he is the only thing worth searching for. His face is all we want to see. His voice is all we want to hear. God doesn't want you to come to him just to get toys. I jokingly told my wife that Baltimore churches may be a little bit fuller this morning because Ravens fans are coming out to pray. I said that jokingly and not really. Why do we seek the face of God? Are we seeking the face of God so we can get some toys? Are we seeking the face of God so that we never have a loss, so that we never are are embarrassed in front of our enemies? You see, God breaks Israel and he breaks Joshua so that Joshua may seek God for God. He wants Joshua to seek him so he can have 
him. He wants, to, he wants Joshua to seek God so he can find his treasure in God himself. So he can find all that he wants in God himself. God breaks us, removes his sense of power and presence from our life so that we may fall on our faces and say, God, you are all I want. I have just tasted life without you and I can't take it anymore. I can't take it. I want your face. I want your presence. I want your power. Look at verse 10. I want you to see now God's response. So here's, here's Joshua, ironically, as we read these verses, ironically saying, God, what happened? Like, you failed us. Like, did you just bring us here so we could die? What are you doing? And I don't think this is like a sign of re- rebellion. I think Joshua is just honestly confused. He's honestly confused. What's happened? What's happened? This is a lament. But look at God's response to Joshua in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, these are the next two words that I want to draw our our attention to. So, So broke faith, these two words, get up. (laughs) Get up. Here's Joshua with mud and snot and tears all over his face, crying before God, and God says, get up. Get up. Get up. Let me give you a couple senses of where, where I think God's going with this. Get up. The problem is not with me. The problem is with you. No. It's not that I've failed you, Joshua. The problem is not with me. It's with you. And guys, imagine there probably was like this strange sense of joy that just swept over Joshua when he heard that. Like the strange joy when we realize that the problem in our life is not with God. It's actually just with us. Oh. So you're still in control? You're still powerful? You can still deliver the promises in my life? The problem is just with me? I thought the problem was with you. And so now it's like, so the problem is not with me, Joshua. The problem is with you. The second sense here is, Joshua, get up because you have work to do. There's sin in the camp and you need to root it out. You need to find it. You need to get, get rid of the sin that's in your camp. Deal with it. Sin is the root cause for every problem in our life. It is sin that has permeated our own individual bodies, our body as a church, our corporate body as a human race. Sin is the problem in our lives. It's the problem in Israel, and Joshua now is called to get up and to deal with it, to lead Israel through ridding themselves of sin. Because the judgment of God, by the way, is coming down on Jericho. It's coming down on Ai. It's now coming down on Israel, and we can't take it as a whole community. So let's find out who the culprit actually is. God gives Joshua the process. They do. They find sin. They find Achan. Achan is stoned. He's buried. The judgment of God comes down on him. Sin is removed from the camp. And this third sense of get up is Joshua, get up and lead the people. 
You are not going to lead the people with your face muddy, snotty, and teary-eyed all in the ground. Get up and lead the people, Joshua. You see, God has not actually called all of Israel to be strong and courageous. He's called Joshua to be strong and courageous. God has not actually called all of Israel to even hear his voice. He's called Joshua to hear his voice. You see, the people of Israel need a Savior leader, and, jo- and God has called Joshua to be that Savior leader to continue leading them. Get up and be the Savior leader for these people that I have called you to be. And chapter 8 records what happens when Joshua does. He listens to the voice of God. He courageously leads them against the enemy Ai. Now here's the problem when I read Joshua. The problem when I read Joshua is I, I, I initially want to see myself as Joshua. Right? I mean, when we read this, isn't that what we do? We're like, all right, if we have to be somebody in this story, we're Joshua. We're the one called to be strong and courageous. We're the one called to listen to the voice of God, to be faithful to God, and to courageously lead these people into the promised land. And if that's the case, if we are Joshua in this story, then the application is easy. Here's the application. Be completely obedient and faithful to God. Never stray from Him. Listen to His Word. I mean, absolutely, completely faithful to God. And then if you do, God's blessings will come down on you. God's promises will come down on you and you will lead people into the promised land. We want to read ourselves as Joshua, but the lump in our throat tells us that we're not Joshua, we're Achan. What we realize, friends, is that we are Achan in this story. We are sinners. We are estranged. We are those inside of Jericho. We are those inside of Ai. We are the king of Ai. We are those outside. We are Achan. We are those who are condemned. We are those who have been polluted by sin. Let me tell you, let me explain this. I want to defend what I'm saying now. Why is it? Why is it that whenever we read this, all right, we read the story of Achan being stoned. And, and try this. If you haven't already read it, which, by the way, I ask you to read the text before Sunday's great practice. But if you haven't already read it, read it, read it this afternoon. Why is it that when we read this, we immediately go to defend Achan? We immediately say, ah, does he have to be stoned? I mean, seriously. Does he have to be stoned? Isn't this a little harsh? Like, he just took some things that were, I mean, and he even confessed it eventually. I mean, it took a while. He lied at first, but eventually he confessed it. Can't we just like slap him on the hand or maybe put him in time out? Does he have? We immediately defend him. Why? Because we see ourselves there. Because that's us. Why do we defend those in Jericho, those Ai, the king of Ai, Achan? Because that is us. We see ourselves, and we see the stones being picked up. We're like, hold up, and we're looking for a Savior to step in our pathway. Friends, we are not Joshua. We are Achan. And Achan here 
in this story was in desperate need for a Savior. Sin that had permeated the body. The most dreaded thing we can imagine. He broke faith. He walked away. Friends, you have broke faith. And we, are, we, we, we read this and we, we even read about Joshua and we read these words, get up. And we're like, well, I can't because the guilt of sin is so heavy on my soul right now. I am crushed by it. I can't enjoy the presence of God because I'm crushed by this. I'm crushed by my guilt. I'm crushed by my past. I'm crushed by the things that I want in life, the blessings I'm seeking after. I can't even get up. Here we see the stones of God's wrath coming at us and we're called to get up and we must get up, but we can't. Because guilt, the guilt of sin has crushed us. You might be like the young Charles Spurgeon at 15 years old, walked to a church on a snowy day, by the way. As he was walking to that church, he was crushed by the weight of the guilt of his sin. Tears flowing down his face feeling the wrath of God upon him. We cannot feel the presence of God because we are stuck under the guilt of sin. We cannot feel the presence of God because we want things more than we want Him. We cannot feel the presence of God because the sin of Adam has permeated our soul and we are filthy. We're not Joshua in the story. I believe that we are Achan who is stoned. We are the king of Ai who is hung on a tree and buried. And who did they have to look toward? You see, Israel... As a whole, they had Joshua to look toward. Joshua was the savior of Israel. He was the leader of Israel in a sense, leading them into the land. And they would look to him. But when the guilt of sin would fall upon one of them, who did that person have to look toward? No one. He was in desperate need of a better savior. Like the young Charles Spurgeon who walked into, the, into that church on a snowy winter morning who was heavy with guilt, crushed by the guilt of his, his own sin, the minister's text that morning were Jesus' words, look unto me. Look unto me, you who have heavy hearts. Look unto me, you who are being crushed under the guilt of sin. Look unto me, you who are under the wrath of God and about to have this, the walls of God's wrath fall up, look unto me. And the minister looked right at Spurgeon and he said, young man, you look miserable. And you always will be miserable in life and in death unless you look unto Christ. You see, the story of Joshua is not an end in and of itself, but rather it's pointing us to a better Savior. 
It's pointing us, sinners, those outside of God's covenant family, the original family, it's pointing us to something better. It's pointing us to an entrance into the family. It's pointing us to a better Savior. You see, just as Achan's sin permeated the camp, what Paul says in Romans is that Adam's sin permeated the camp of the human race. But just as one man's sin made all sinful, what does Paul say? The righteousness of one. The righteousness of one permeated the souls of all God's children and made them righteous. Robbed them of their guilt and destroyed their flesh and put new life into their hearts. What Israel needed was a Savior found in Joshua. What Achan needed was a Savior the kind of Savior that Joshua could not be. What you need this morning is a better Savior. And friends, I'm telling you, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Find it in Jesus. Jesus is your Savior. And let me tell you how He is your Savior. He, he saved you in two ways. One, Jesus was Joshua. Jesus was, he was like Joshua in that he went to fight against the kingdom of darkness. He went to fight against the principalities and the powers. He went to fight against the, that, that which has gripped us, that which has held this world in darkness. And what Jesus showed us is that we're really not fighting against flesh and blood. That's not really where the fight's at. That's a picture of what was to come. What Jesus showed us is that the fight is not against flesh and blood, but against darkness, against the rulers of this dark, dark world, against sin itself, against the guilt of sin, which condemns you. Jesus was like Joshua, but check this out. This is the irony of the gospel. Number two, Jesus also became Achan. He also became the king of Ai. He became those inside of Jericho. You see, what happened was Jesus took the stones of God's wrath, the walls, the crushing walls of God's judgment. He stood there as Achan and took that wrath for you, Achan. As Israel is looking to Joshua, Achan, today, you, my friend, must look to Christ. You cannot get up. The guilt of sin is crushing you. Look to Christ. He has died in your place. He has, he has taken the stones of God's wrath, the walls of God's wrath. But check this out. Unlike Achan, he rose from the dead, leaving the guilt of your sin buried in the rubble. Amen. And there's nothing left to accuse you. And you can walk away. 
You can join the, the, the blessings, the promises of God's family, and you can enjoy that as sinners whose sin has been buried with Christ in the ground underneath the rubble. Do you know this, God? Do you know this, God? Are you looking to Christ this morning before the walls come down on you? Before the stones are thrown at you, look to Christ. And there you find a Savior. And I promise you, He will make you into a new creation. Friends, He will make you new. And many of you can stand as a testimony to that truth. He makes new people out of broken things. Will you look to Him before the walls of God's judgment come down upon you? The only thing worth looking at today, the only thing worth searching after, is the face of God, the presence of God, and we find that in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Look to Him, and there you find a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as uh, people filled with joy. Because though, though we realize how sinful we are, though we realize how sinful sin actually is and how, how we ought to be condemned, in some ways it's as if the, the realization of that dark truth um, compared to the, the wonder and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ it's as if it just draws us into worship, into gratitude, into thanks. Because God, we see what we once were. We see what, we, what should be ours if left up to us. God, we know that we are nothing without you. We know that we are people desperately in need of a Savior. But God, we stand here as a people believing and knowing that Jesus Christ is that Savior. And so today we look no further and we place our junk onto Him and we worship Him. God, thank You for healing us. Thank You for saving us. Thank You for being so kind to us. And it's in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that everybody said, Amen. Amen.